I'm not sure what to say after that. I mean, yeah. that, that's just incredibly uh, uh, challenging to swallow. Totally <laughs> you think of a... I think that the most difficult thing for me is that I don't want them to feel embarrassed. So then I get into this weird trap where I'm like, all right, I'm not embarrassed, but I don't want them to be embarrassed. So now I'm trying to make it so normal that I'm actually like freaking myself out. Please don't tell my parents that like I'm having sex. And I'm like, I kind of have to, you know? So like, how, how do we best navigate these conversations? Because I'm a trained family therapist and like, man, the struggle bus, it's, I, I'm not driving it, but I'm yeah. on it. Hello and welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast. My name is Neftali Serrano. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. We are so happy to be here with you today. I'm here together with two of our other podcast teammates. And uh, the reason for that is that our lead podcaster, Grace Pratt, is uh, with her family as they watch over her mother who is in hospice and uh, nearing the end of her life. And so we wanted to start our podcast today by dedicating our podcast today to Grace's mom. Her name is Terry Pratt. And uh, of course, our thoughts and prayers with Grace during this difficult time. So Terry, we are with you and uh, this podcast is for you. Well, uh, without further ado then, uh, I'm going to have our fellow podcasters introduce themselves today. Um, and we have, uh, Grace was kind enough to leave us an uh, icebreaker question uh, because she doesn't like the fact that we end up talking about the weather at the beginning of every podcast, which by the way, it's uh, supposed to snow here in North Carolina. Um, <laughs> and if it's supposed to snow, Apparently, that means that school is canceled, regardless of whether snow actually exists in the atmosphere. It's just the mere threat that is enough to cancel. Uh, so anyway, uh, parents in North Carolina are not happy today. Anyway, so I just violated Grace's rule right there. So but the icebreaker <laughs> is, um, as you guys introduce yourselves, uh, uh, if you could break any world record what would it be? So we'll start on the west coast of the country with Bridget. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm Bridget Beachy, a psychologist, um, working out here in Yakima, Washington, where everybody wants to go uh, because it has great weather. No. Um, sorry, Grace. <laughs> we'll just, we'll Don't there. downplay your, 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 your thing on, national, on a national <laughs> podcast here. I mean, you know. I know. Yakima has lots of attractive components to life there, other it, than other than the great work you guys do. It does, but to actually get people to physically come here and to see that, that's the issue because it's not yeah. Seattle. So anyways, if you come to Seattle, take a little drive two and a half hours uh, east and hang out with us in Yakima. Um, but as far as, as far as the the, the icebreaker of like, what would one have a world record for? Uh, the first thing that came to my mind was something that I always had thought of as a little kid that it'd be really cool to be like a world record sprinter and be like the fastest woman in the world type of deal. I thought that that'd be really awesome. And then the, the second thing that my brain went to is like, man, wouldn't it be great if I could type so fast that I can get all my chart notes done in like two minutes. And then I felt <laughs> like, I felt sad for myself that that's yeah, the second like, thing yes. that I thought of. 
Um, but it kind of <laughs> reflected where I was at when I was writing those a lot of chart notes. So um, I don't know, what, being the fastest woman on earth running wise, or maybe the fastest typer on earth. <laughs> Either of those, I feel like I would take right now. <laughs> oh my, okay, wow. All right, we're gonna have an intervention. Uh, we'll do a contextual interview with uh, Bridget after yes. the podcast. You'll so find everything that's, out. That's not good. <laughs> All right, thanks Bridget. All right, and then we, we move then back to the East Coast uh, with Amber. <laughs> hey guys. Um, so I'm joining everyone from just outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I refuse to talk about the weather to honor Grace's wishes. And I do have to say that Bridget, I kind of am with you there because the first thing I thought about was like how cool it would be to be the most flexible person. Mm. I think that like whenever I like watch circus acts or like, you know, uh, contortionists or anything like that, like it just blows my mind. I think that like that is just a feat of like the human anatomy. So I think that would be really cool to be super flexible. And then the second thing I thought of was how cool would it be to be the person who needs the least amount of sleep so that I could get all of my notes done. <laughs> and it's just really interesting that that came up for both of us in in different ways so i have to say that you know if you're if you're in a bad place i'm right there with you i'm not sure what to say after that i mean yeah. that, that's just incredibly uh, uh challenging to swallow totally <laughs> you think of a world record and think about your charting <laughs> yeah don't forget the emails are in there too and there's a lot of things you can do with typing uh chapters uh <laughs> articles <laughs> same there's a lot that i could get done if i didn't need eight to nine hours of sleep every exactly. night so oh man okay all right so i don't you know i had a hard time with this uh, icebreaker uh but recently i saw an episode of carpool karaoke um it's you know it's that show where people get in you know stars get in cars and then sing songs and chat and stuff i like some of the conversations get to know some of the stars on it Anyway, there's a recent episode, and I cannot for the life of me remember the uh, comedian who was uh, driving the car, uh, but I know that Darius Rucker from Hootie and the Blowfish was in the car, and it was super awesome because they were singing all sorts of awesome songs and talking about, um, you know, Prince and all the you know, cool stuff. But then they get off the car, and they uh, attempt to break two world records. So one was stacking sandwiches. So, so stacking sandwiches on top of each other. And I, I forget what the record is, but it's like insane. So they, they tried that. They couldn't, they couldn't actually get that one. I thought that was cool. But then they broke a record that I thought would be a really cool record to break, which is the number of hugs in 60 seconds. So they, they just stood there and gave themselves consecutive hugs in 60 seconds. And they actually did break the record. I think it was something like they did like 160 hugs or something in 60 seconds, which is really hard to do. Actually, they were sweating and like panting after the fact. So I thought, well, how about that one? I think you'd have the world record for most hugs in a minute. It'd be an awesome record to hold. That's lovely. Yeah. And has nothing I would say to do it's with notes. Than, it's better than charting. <laughs> yeah. It, technically. No, <laughs> <laughs> not very productive, but interesting. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's it for introduce. Let's uh, transition now to our news and notes.
All right, so we'll do some quick news and notes because we have an awesome podcast topic for you today. We're going to be talking about the, uh, taboo or hard topics that come up in our, our work in primary care um, and other settings. So stay tuned for that. But first, just a couple of uh, uh, things of note. First, our call for proposals is open right now. Our conference in October in Philadelphia uh, go to integratedcareconference.com. It's going to be awesome. Um, and you get a chance to uh, participate in making it awesome because our conference is awesome because of the people who go, who provide energy and expertise. So go on to integratedcareconference.com, submit through the site uh, your submission for a session. It, it's going to be fantastic. So go there, check it out. We're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah, check it out. And then just a couple of things that have just been in the air. So I don't know if you guys uh, saw this article recently, but it's been uh, highly publicized on social media. And although it's not integrated care specific, um, it, is in, it was interesting to me just from the standpoint of just how we address families and the stress on families. It's an article by David Brooks in The Atlantic. Link will be in the show notes called The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. Have you guys seen that? So it's really fascinating take. And it's not the first time I've heard this thought. And frankly, as someone with a nuclear family, uh, not the first time I've, I've actually thought and experienced that. You know, it's basically the, the thesis of it is that uh, sort of the modern concept of the nuclear family just doesn't work. Um, and in fact, that it's a little bit of an artificial concept sort of created in the 50s and 60s that's pr put an intense amount of pressure on the two, fam two parents and two and a half kids idea as being a self-sufficient entity. And lots of folks uh, really struggle with making that work outside of uh, supportive communities, extended networks, extended family, et cetera. And now people are looking to create families that are not... Um, necessarily biological families, essentially creating supportive communities in order to, to live in. So it's a great article. It's a good read. It's challenging. Um, you don't have to agree with it all to uh, kind of uh, be, be edified by it. But it's just interesting for a healthcare professional standpoint to read and to, to think about, I think, self-reflectively, the pressure that our families are under and how that manifests in all sorts of the things that present in primary care, for example moms with depression, uh, kids stressed at school, you know, all, all the sorts of even some of the health issues that, that are uh, stress related. So I just thought that was an interesting uh, thing to pass on. The other link that I'm going to put in the show notes today is uh, the American Psychological Association. Uh, this was mostly the work of a good friend of CFHA and CFHA member Doug Tynan. So credit goes to him. They've published this site with statewide resources, and it's a variety of different kind of resources um, from sort of billing particularities, policies, um, resource, uh, resources, uh, and resource lists. So we're going to put the link to the page on there if you're interested in taking a look at it. It's just been recently published, and uh, you may find some things of interest there, at the very least, bookmark it. All right, now last but not least, I just wanna uh, sort of give a shout out to our CFHA members 
because we've just had some outstanding conversations on our listserv in the last few weeks. Let me just kind of read off a few of these topics for you that we've been uh, kind of talking about. I just love these conversations when they come through. So one subject heading was the, the primary care first model is flawed. CMS can fix it with stronger support for behavioral health. We had our good friend, David Bauman, who's uh, Bridget's uh, better half, post a PCBH corner. Um, that's on our news site, by the way, integratedcarenews.com. So it's a video discussion that's really interesting. And they posted that link for us. Uh, somebody else posted on uh, written agreements for cost sharing and has some questions around that. Uh, assessing financial capacity in primary care. And then there was this really long thread on doing uh, diagnostic assessments in primary care and whether that's whether you can make that happen within a PCBH model. So it's just really cool conversations. And if you're not a CFHA member, join so you can be a part of these kind of conversations. Um, if you're, for whatever reason, refuse to join because you're not cool, um, we do put the best of our conversations on the website and those you can peruse. Um, and we'll put the link in the show notes. It's a, a best of thread of our conversations. But really, guys, you know all the cool people are CFHA members, of course. Naturally. All right. <laughs> all right. Before we get into our main topic, let's take a quick break. So here's the situation. You're a clinic trying to implement what should be a simple screening process for depression, and you're just not getting results. And you're trying to get your primary care providers working together with your mental health professionals, but the two sides just aren't jiving. Meanwhile, everyone agrees that the need is great and something needs to be done. Well, that's where CFHA's technical assistance services come in. We work with projects large and small from one-hour consultations to 1,000 hours and help you implement integrated care pathways that are evidence-based and grounded in practical know-how. Our stable of consultants are here to help. Interested? Then simply go to cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. Join the growing list of organizations who have benefited from the best guidance for integrated care around. That's cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. And we're back. All right. So let's launch into our topic. So today we're going to be talking about those really hard conversations or sometimes those taboo conversations that we face in integrated care settings. So guys, I think the first thing I wanted to ask you guys is, you know, can you think about those hard conversations that you have and give some examples of some of those really, really difficult conversations and why they're difficult. What makes them? What is it about these conversations in exam rooms that makes it difficult for you? But, and I want you not just to think about you, but also your care team partners. Why is it hard for them also sometimes to have some of these conversations? I've got a long list that I actually developed. It was actually pretty easy for me to think about some of these hard conversations, which makes me think, man, we do have a lot of these hard conversations. So Bridget, when you, when you think about these hard or taboo conversations, what comes to your mind? I mean, I think that mine might be what most people automatically start assuming or thinking of is anything related to sex from erectile dysfunction to um, pornography uh, towards really anything that has to do I guess, with sex. And I think that the most difficult thing for me is that I don't want them to feel embarrassed. So then I get into this weird trap where I'm like, all right, I'm not embarrassed. 
but I don't want them to be embarrassed. So now I'm trying to make it so normal that I'm actually like freaking myself out. Right. And, and uh, because I, I, I really am not that embarrassed by it, I don't think. Uh, and I don't want them to be. So it's just this weird thing where I want them to feel yeah. comfortable, but almost too much. So then obviously it tells me if it was just, you know, I don't think about that before I ask somebody who they live with, you know? So there's, there's just some more emotion that's attached to it to the, just the topic in, in general. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you named that though, because that, that's exactly what I feel too with a lot of these uh, more taboo topics. It's, it's a sort of internal battle of, of trying to manage their shame and feelings of vulnerability around it. And then managing my own feelings around it. I'm like, wait a second. Uh, I don't even know if they uh, are embarrassed, but I like assume that they right. are. And yeah. And I'm like, maybe I'm the one who's embarrassed and <laughs> And I just keep telling myself, I'm like, this is a doctor's office. I am a doctor working in healthcare, a doctor of psychology working in healthcare. Like this, and this is very human and this is a behavior. So we are supposed to be here right now. And I, that seems to help, you know, just to kind of let that wash over you and realize that this is, this needs to happen. Uh, and I do pride myself as a BHC, as the person who can talk about anything, whether it's de-escalating an angry conversation, whether it's breaking to somebody that we can't give them opioids, whether it's not, it's that we find out that somebody was using methamphetamine and we're going to have to let them know that, okay, you violated whatever contract. Um, I, I want to always do it in a way that's dignifying and not be like, oh, well, use meth, well, you know, I want to do it in a way that's like, that for them to know that I don't think less of them. Uh, and at the same time, you know, there are certain things that a physician can't continue to give you. They can't continue to give you Adderall. You know what I mean? Like there's just some realities to it, but I don't want it to be in a authoritarian, punitive, judgmental way. So I do pride myself on being somebody who can have those difficult conversations and navigate all the human complexity. Yeah, yeah. You know, along those lines, uh, one of the more awkward conversations I had in an exam room, I was brought in to work with the, uh, there's a couple, but I was brought in to work with the, the male who was struggling with depression, pretty much chronic lifelong depression. But the key sort of background piece that was really hard to maneuver was that they were swingers. And uh, there's all these sort of convoluted relationships with other couples and um, which they even were able to admit some of which they, they were name, able to name as unhealthy. And it was hard for me to sort of challenge this fundamental notion around their lifestyle and its impact on his depression because he was clearly the one that was less comfortable with the lifestyle. And yet, you know, I felt kind of trapped by the, essentially by their choice to be in this lifestyle and feel like, you know, can I challenge their understanding of the role that this lifestyle has and how it impacts uh, his depression? And it's been long enough now that I don't remember even what I kind of did with it. Um, this was probably over the course of a couple of visits with them. Um, but I do remember that feeling of feeling trapped in the conversation because I didn't sense an opening really to, to address and say, hey guys, have you considered whether this lifestyle is part of the problem? So, Do you remember, Neftali, do you remember feeling like it was directly related? 
Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I felt like, I felt like on the one hand, I didn't want to kind of be judgy and just assume, right. And, and I, I wanted to do a good job of make sure, get context and understand what's going on here and all that. But it seemed fairly obvious to me at the time. It's like, this is a really awkward place for this guy to be in. And the, the jealousy, the, you know, how, how could he feel stable in that sort of uh, situation? So yeah, it was just an awkward space to be in. I'm not sure I'm, I handle it perfectly. I think that is does, a really, yeah. yeah, I was gonna say, I think that that is a really tough place to be in because, you know, I do specialize in working with people who are engaged in alternative relationship styles, um, who express themselves on, you know, a very wide sexual orientation spectrum. Um, and a lot of people come to me and they have felt very judged by other practitioners in the past, whether that was a family care physician or another therapist. Um, but what I will say is that, you know, being an open-minded person, as I'm sure you are, it becomes very difficult because even if that is the problem, which sometimes it, it is, right? Because he could have had a job that was really impacting his ability to feel great about himself or his self-esteem, or he could have really hated his job. And you would have approached it in very much the same way. Hey, do you really feel like this is the best position for you to be putting yourself in given your propensity towards depression? Um, but because of the stigma attached to alternative relationship styles, people are almost expecting you to pinpoint that as the problem area when they do disclose it. And I feel like sometimes that can cause the patient to feel a little bit more de defensive or automatically assume that you're being judgmental or you are closed-minded, when in reality you are coming at it from a very systemic perspective and you're looking at all these other aspects of their life, which seems to be going pretty well, but where this person's showing a lot of anxiety or, you know, their depression really seems to hit a low after they have a sexual encounter with another couple, that's what you're paying attention to and that's what you're looking at. Um, but they're almost anticipating you to say that's going to be the problem and they're not willing to then look at it from that perspective. And then you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place as someone who's trying to shed light on different triggers, if you will, to somebody kind of feeling good and confident and working through their depression. And it really doesn't have anything to do with the lifestyle choice per se. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and that's what I felt. It was, yeah, I could definitely feel that was a power differential in the couple. And so the wife was sort of more firmly attached to this uh, notion and this other relationship they were in, and he was feeling left out of that. So it's, you know, it, it was this, and because both of them are in the exam room. Um, so it, again, I don't remember what I did in retrospect, but in retrospect, if I did this, I thought, I, I would have done is like probably just like sent her out of the exam room to kind of focus on him and give him space and time to explore his own feelings and um, make his own judgments about where he is in the relationship and not how that relates to how he's functioning in life. Um, so, yeah. So I know sex is sort of an easy topic to pick if we're thinking about taboo, but there's also other really tough conversations that we have in these exam rooms. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering about some of those. 
Bridget, you alluded to some of those, especially related to, and this was my second category of topics, was working with uh, substance abuse, whether it's uh, folks seeking opioids from their physicians inappropriately, or folks on opioids who are breaking contracts, diverting medications, et cetera. I mean, to me, that's the other big category of, of, of patient. And I add to that just also, especially recently, as physicians um, have been cracking down on prescribing opioids, taking people off, people with genuine chronic pain who are, are getting either diminished doses of opioids or getting taken off opioids altogether, those are really tough. So I'm wondering about wh what you guys think about how you feel in those visits and how you t try to maneuver those. Yeah, I think that something that really helps me as a clinician is that I don't feel the negative feelings towards the, what the person's behavior does. And I think maybe it's because of that contextual lens that most of the time, once I hear where somebody's coming from who has a propensity to use substances, most of the time I think to myself, well, you know, if I was in their position, I can't say I wouldn't be doing the same thing. And so I carry with it less negativity even to start out with. Whereas, and, and I'm, I, I don't, I truly do not mean to throw my medical counterparts under the bus. That, that's just not really the world that they, they don't live in the contextual world as much. And it's lots of different contextual reasons for that. Uh, and so I think it's a lot easier for me to just stay calm and keep to the facts of like, again, if uh, you're supposed to have a certain substance in your system and you don't, we cannot continue to prescribe it because it's not in your system or this thing needs to be in your system. We went over that this other thing can't be in your system and now it is. And we were up front with that. And this is the third time. It's just, to me, it's not that they're a bad person and we're going to continue to help them. And at the same time, we can't do this. We can't continue to prescribe this. So it doesn't feel as negative to me. It doesn't feel as emotional it, it is uncomfortable because obviously the person's very upset and I don't, I don't like seeing that. And I wonder to myself sometimes like, man, if I had a prescription pad, would I be able to resist to not? Mm -hmm. So every, when people are like, oh, I wish that psychologists had prescribing privileges. And if we could just do mm -hmm. some more school, I'm like, yeah, no, thanks. Like I don't trust stimulus <laughs> control. I do not trust myself enough. So it's, I guess it's easy to be like, oh, well, we can't do this when I couldn't do it if I wanted to. So I, I, I don't know. I think that maybe what makes it easier for me to be in those conversations than the rest of the medical team is because, like I said, A, I don't have that negative emotion attached to it, and B, I can't prescribe something even if I, you know, was tempted to. I yeah. really think bringing that human lens to it is so important when you're going through those difficult conversations. When I was working in the emergency room, we had, you know, we, call, we affectionately referred to them as frequent flyers you know, who would like come in and, you know, they were pretty much only drug seeking for the sake of drug seeking. And the amount of negativity from like the EMTs that brought them in to the doctors that had seen them for, you know, the seventh time that month or whatever, um, it, it was really shocking to me how they were just kind of not treated to their face, but just kind of behind the scenes, like, oh, so-and-so is back here again. And you know what they're trying to do. And I really feel like as people who are choosing to be in helping professions, really being able to think about, you know, hey, like what is going on in this person's life? How did they get here? If I was in this type of position, 
I can't say that I would be doing anything differently than what they're experiencing right now. And really being able to put yourself in those shoes, I think does a world of difference to be able to really sit and join with that person, no matter what it is that they are bringing to the table and to be able to approach it in a way that you feel like you're giving the most compassion that you can without feeling like you're getting burnt out by the conversation because you're seeing everybody as an individual and not seeing as this overarching horrible epidemic that I feel like sometimes people are getting caught up in. And even if they are drug seeking, it's like, well, again, if you knew their context, you would see why they're drug seeking. Right. <laughs> but still, I still don't have to be upset about it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think the thing that's difficult for me in those situations is actually I feel more pressure, not from the patient necessarily, but I feel the pressure of both ends of the physician on my one side and the patient on the other. And I kind of feel like I'm in the middle a lot. So, uh, you know, the physician has their agenda and maybe some of like what you're talking about, Amber, just sort of that transference around like, oh, you know, they're back again and they're trying to manipulate me and they're trying to, you know, get this out of me and, and, and just all that negativity that they're bringing to the situation. And then sometimes the expectation of, hey, go in and fix this, right? And then on the other hand, you have the patient on the other side of me, obviously wanting their medications, being frustrated, you know, trying to plead their case. And then I feel that pressure of being caught in the middle. And yeah, I think, I think it's, it is a really important to, what, what Bridget, you said, is understand both their contexts. <laughs> right. I mean, this is what being doing good integrated care is, is understanding not just the context of the patient, but the context of the care team as well. The pressures they're under, their perspective, what's happening there. So that, you know, I think when I'm doing a good job, I'm able to shape not just the patient's behavior, but also the behavior of the care team. Because like you said, Amber, it's not even just the physician, it's nurses, it's EMAs. It's all that negativity that collectively creates an environment that's antagonistic and set up to fail in these sort of circumstances because everybody's ready to pounce on that patient in order to kind of impose their will. And so when I do a good job at it, which is not all the time, um, I, I've <laughs> failed plenty of times at this, but when I do a good job at it, I feel like I have been able to help the provider or members of the care team see the patient context, increase their compassion at the same time as reinforcing good, healthy boundaries, yeah. right? So not giving up on that. And then on the patient side, um, at the very least, come to a place of acceptance of the reality of the situation, the reality including that they're frustrated and that they're in relationship with other folks who can't violate these boundaries. And so they may walk out not feeling great, but if they have at least some acceptance of that reality, then I feel like I've done my job there. And if the team also is, is just more aware of the patient's context and their own affective response to that, and maybe diminish some of that negativity that you're talking about, Amber, I, th I think that's good integrated care. That, that's about as, as good as I feel like I can get out of that kind of scenario. And I have empathy for, like you're saying, Neftali, the care team, because they didn't, you know, go to school for this long to talk about behaviorism and all the other things. So imagine trying to do your job and not having this huge piece of training and then just like the same thing day in, day out, week after week after week. So it's like half the time I'm standing there 
and I have a, I'm like, well, I see why the nurse is doing what uh, he's doing. And I see why the physician is doing what she's doing. And I see, I, and then it's, it's like, it's so overwhelming. It could be overwhelming. Cause then I'm like, man, but I see everybody's perspective. It's probably how a family therapist might feel when they do some work with like, <laughs> with each member of the family. And they're like, well, yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. And I see where you're coming from. And I see where you're coming from. And like you're saying, until no. you try to patch that and say, well, where they're coming from and where they're coming from and you're in the middle. No. Uh, fun, fun times. Oh, and uh, I, I don't know as far as if Amber or, or you Neftali had any other major difficult topics, but one of the ones that I found for myself and for the BHCs that I work with, and, and I want to see what you guys thought is when you're working with a parent and a kid and you feel Yes, like parent, I was literally just going to say that. I, when you said yeah. family therapy, I'm like, here's my segue because this was my topic. Well, go ahead. Topic. Yeah, take it away. Take it away. Take it away. No, I no, I... No, I was just like, we really need to talk about this because I, I know the age, you know, mental health laws are different in every state, but in Pennsylvania, the age of consent is 14. It's 14 years old. So at the age of 14, everything that they share becomes completely confidential, which on one hand is amazing because it really helps enrich the therapeutic environment. They feel more free to share with their treating physicians, with you know their mental health care providers, with what's actually going on so we can treat them appropriately, which is fantastic. But on the other hand, you get they're the 14. parents that come in, right? The parents that come in and they're like, yo, like what's going on? You're like, ah, I can't tell you, like, I'm sorry. <laughs> and it, it gets really ugly sometimes, especially when you know they're like are they using drugs like what's happening here are they having sex and I'm like oh gosh let's all come together and then the kid's like yo you can't tell my parents anything because I told you like no it's a no-go like I am not giving my consent like there is no, <laughs> no way that you're allowed to share any of this with my parents and then on the flip side when they're under 14 you know like gosh like 12 13 14 year old children nowadays they might as well be like in their 20s like with the some of the stuff that they're bringing to the table so I you know I talk to these like 12 13 year olds who uh, you know aren't legally protected with confidentiality and they're like yo please don't tell my parents that like I'm having sex and I'm like I kind of have to you know so like how how do we best navigate these conversations because I'm a trained family therapist and like man the struggle bus it's I I'm not driving it but I'm yeah, on it that's yeah, for what sure do you, what do you do when you realize that the parent is the one who's sabotaging oh yeah like that's that's what's so hard for me because I because uh, some of my BHCs will lose their mind especially early on they like want to tell the parent like you're the problem and I'm like you can't do that because they're the ones bringing them in they're the kid's nine if you upset the parents they're not going to bring them back in like and you have to understand maybe the parents context so it can give you a lens so I don't what do you do with that when it's like you know the parent just the patient game the waiting game and try to over time yeah it's um it, it's really and that's where you know, I, I, I feel much like yourself, Bridget. I am a very direct, forward, and honest person. And so, like, if I see something, I say something. But in these lovely, delicate situations, that's not necessarily the most effective means of communication for the client and for the out 
outcome overall. So you do almost have to be patient. And I, I see myself as like, you know, Hansel and Gretel in the woods. I just kind of drop breadcrumbs yes. like here and there. I'm like, oh, well, wow, that's very interesting that, you know, you hadn't you said that like you sometimes lash out in anger and now we're seeing little Timmy lash out in anger. Huh, that's very... That's Isn't very interesting. interesting. Don't you think that's interesting? <laughs> you know, I wonder where he's getting this from. Like, and like, to me, there's like red alarms going off in my head. Like, duh. Like, he's freaking out at everybody because you freak out at everybody. Like, this is I how like family that. systems I work. Wonder, <laughs> I wonder. I'm just, I'm just, he just hit me as we're talking. Like, I wonder. <laughs> Meanwhile, yeah. you're like, I've known this for two years. My God, <laughs> have something <laughs> breakthrough. Have you guys seen um, my big fat Greek wedding where the mom, she talks about being the neck of the family, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the, the father might be the head of the family, but the mother is the neck and it is her job to turn the head whichever way she wants. But it, it is kind of that whole like, all right, horse, like here is the water. Let's go to the water. It's nice water. And, you know, you have to lead them there. You can't make them drink. You can't, you know, force anything on them. But the second it becomes their light bulb, then you have your in for change. Right. And that's kind of where I just kind of keep dropping those breadcrumbs. That's good. Yeah. I mean, it, it is an incredibly challenging, I would probably say, yeah, that, that's probably the most sensitive area uh, that, that, that I've had to have it, um, even more than the other topics we've talked about. Um, and, and I think that what I've come to with that is, you know, back to context, absolutely. You have to embed yourself in the context of the parent in order to be able to see the world that they, the way they see it, not to excuse it, but to understand it. Mm -hmm. and, and through that, to see where the leverage points might be with the parent. And then I take a very functional approach. What, what I try to do is teach the parent to look at behavior from that functional standpoint versus from a sort of standpoint of judgment and labeling. Um, because once you attach judgment, um, and, and a label to a behavior like, oh, um, you know, the kid didn't take out the garbage. He's a bad kid, you know, or he's defying me. Right. Um, that's part of the issue that triggers highly reactive parents. So what I try to do is I try to say, Hey, let's get what you want to happen here. Cause I want you to be in charge here in this family. It's really important for you to be in charge. So let's start looking at the behavior itself and figure out a way to change the behavior. But let's remove some of the judgment of that behavior because we don't know what's happening inside little Timmy's head. There may be lots of reasons why he's not taking out the garbage. But our goal is not to change what's in his head. Our goal is to have him take the garbage out, right? So let's figure out a way to get that to happen so that you can be in charge. So I try to feed into the need for authority and control on some level, even if it's a little bit pathological, uh, remove some of that judgment on the behavior and then start a functional conversation on the behavior itself, because we can work with the behavior a lot more readily than we can work with what a lot of parents in these situations are doing, which is trying to change attitudes, yeah. you know, and try to change, uh, you know, their kids feelings about them. And I, and I try to remind, I, I try to normalize it for parents to say, you know, your kids are not going to like you. They don't need to like you. They just need to do what you want them to do, right? They need to do things that are functional in your life and in their lives. And sometimes that, that reframe can 
uh, help change the nature of the conversation and what the parent is actually coming in for. Um, it's, it's a lot more workable to have that kind of a functional approach. But then even with that, it is really hard to stomach when you see in an exam room, just verbally, it may not rise to the level of abuse, but it's just mean kind of interaction between the parent and the child. That's the part that I, I really feel challenged by because I feel like that's just not fair. He's eight years old. Why are you talking to him like that? No, why are you, why are you putting that on him? You know? So I don't know what you guys do in those sorts of situations, but I, boy, that's, that's really tough. I've had to swallow my words quite a few times. Yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, especially when I was working in the emergency room, you know, we would have these kids come in in active crisis. Um, They're, you know, feeling suicidal or, you know, they've already engaged in self-harm. And even within that context, I would be doing assessments and seeing the family, you know, the parents oftentimes just berating this child, you know, like how, how dare you, you're so dumb, you know, like, what are you stupid? You're crazy. Like, you know, all these like labels and things like that. And I would really do my best to reframe the situation and, you know, try to align with the parents, but it, it is tough to, to see the system, right. To see exactly what is going on, but know that we're a very small piece of the puzzle and we only have them for that moment. We can't go home with them. We can't, you know, we can't be super nanny as much as some of us might like to be. We can't do that. But in that moment, being able to just let that, that child know like, hey, you have an advocate here. You have somebody that's supporting you. But to be able to, like you said, Naftali, like do it in a way that doesn't alienate the parents and cause them to feel like you're not on their side. For me, oftentimes when I needed to change the atmosphere in in a room when I was doing interviews, I would almost thank people in advance for the things that I wanted them to do. So if I saw a parent that was really not being supportive, I'd be like, it's so great that you're being really supportive by being here for little Timmy right now when he needs you the most. And that would kind of like trigger them to like stop and think like, oh, hey, like, am I actually being supportive right now? Oh, wow. Like my kid actually does need me. And that wasn't coming from a place of judgment. I was not telling them what to do. I would just kind of thank them in advance for the desired behavior, you know, at at that time. And it would really kind of help to change the atmosphere at that time. I think taking that strength-based approach of any time. So if the parent has like insult, insult, neutral, kind of positive insult, insult, I go right to the neutral and slightly positive and I'll like say that I'll be like, that is so like, I, I love how much it's important to you that Timmy can function. So, you know, you want him to be able to function in this world. He needs to go to school. You want him to go to school. Like, and, and then it's like you said, Amber, it's like, it's almost like, well, yeah, that is what I want to have. And I will say that when I get emotionally or like internally triggered where you're sitting there and you kind of get that, like, it feels like you get punched in the gut. And I'm not a parent. And that's another thing that's super fun. Well, you have kids. Um, <laughs> probably for a whole nother day. But you get that, you know, just because I don't have kids doesn't mean that I can watch an eight-year-old be verbally, you know, demeaned yeah. and not feel a certain way about it. So you get that, like, feeling like you're getting punched in the gut and you're like, oh, man, I'm, like, physically ill right now. That's the moment that I'm like, there is something going on with the parent. And almost always, the minute I turn and give the parent a little bit more attention, 
it's crazy how it happens. I can't even describe it. They will start saying things like that are really revealing. They'll be like, well, I never really had parents who cared or my parents right. just beat the crap out of me. And I don't want to do that to Timmy. So I scream yeah. at him. Like, and it's <laughs> interesting. I don't even know exactly yeah. what yeah. I do in those moments where it's like, maybe I just let my guard down. It's like, I get punched in the gut. And then I'm just like, I don't, I lean in and I'm just like here with the parent. And then all of a sudden they're like, nobody ever loved me. And you're like, Oh, okay. Like, and then it might make so much more sense that like in this moment, they really may be doing the best they can. They may have not had a parent. They may have left them, but they may have beaten them. So the fact that they actually came into, like you said, the, uh, the, the medical center, that might be like 10 steps up. I don't know. And, and then highlighting and yeah. using that as like your, your, the thing that you want to highlight versus all the other stuff. So it's, it's tough though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All and these I think situations also, are like, so taxing. And I think reframing it, it as a positive experience, right? Like it's so great that you guys came to get help because if you didn't come in, like we wouldn't be able to work together to help you guys as parents and be able to help, you know, Timmy figure out like why he's afraid to go to school. And it's so great that you guys are here instead of them seeing it as a negative experience, because there is still so much stigma attached to, <clears throat> to mental health and mental health needs, you know, in this country. So people automatically assume that if you're coming and like your child is expressing mental health concerns that you then automatically are like a crappy parent. Oh yeah. Um, yeah which yeah, like, yeah. yeah, like may that maybe that is going on, but like oftentimes I find that when parents are acting in that way, it's their pride that's coming out. It's their fear of judgment that's coming out. So the second, you know, we're able to kind of flip the, the script, so to speak, and make it a positive experience is so awesome that you guys are here. It's, this is awesome. They're able to kind of be like, oh, okay, well, well, since no one's judging me, like maybe I don't have to keep shaming little Timmy for the fact that we're even here in the first place. Okay. Yeah. Really great stuff. And I wonder if a, a way to kind of sum up our conversation is with a little bit of a, uh, an image. I, I think of when I work with patients, I'm always looking for the light in the darkness. And if I can find that light, center in on it, and pull the strings of that light out, and pull some more light out of that light, that's a lot more effective than pointing out the darkness and trying to eradicate it, you know? Sort of like this functional and contextual approach that we use, right? We're really trying to work from values and from what's important in their lives and working outward. We're not working from symptoms inward, right? So, uh, that's, that's at least the image that comes to my mind. This has been an awesome conversation. Now, I, I actually have one more topic, but we don't have time to discuss the topic. So it'll be like semi cliffhanger. I don't even know if we'll ever get to it, <laughs> but this is another really difficult kind of situation, very different than uh, other kind of situations. But I've had several patients in my career who suffer from pseudosiesis, uh, which is basically, uh, an obsessive, um, I would say delusional uh, idea that they are pregnant when they are not. And uh, it's an incredibly awkward space to be in when you're with someone who is legitimately invested in the idea that they're pregnant and uh, even can point to their abdomen and say, no, I feel the baby moving. And they've had doctor after doctor tell them, no, it's not there. It's not there. And they've had to and yet it persists and there's grief, real grief around that. Um, it's a really 
awkward to be there and to, to like, how much of this do I challenge directly? How much do I provide support? <laughs> uh, yeah. I no. feel like that with a lot of delusion, delusional expression. I, I Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. very similar to sort of more classic delusions. Cause in this, in with pseudosciences, the, one of the things is you don't have any of the other stuff that you see with folks necessarily with psychotic disorders. Mm. So it's, it's really unique. It's almost like a OCD type variant of a delusion. Um, if you can, can imagine that. So anyway, I'll leave the conversation there. <laughs> I would say like, that's, that's a new one for me. I am definitely going to go do some research for sure. Yeah. 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 I've had, but I've literally, I've had several, it's not just been one or two, um, several patients with that, um, including recently. All right. Well, I, I would like topic, to, uh, right, I, I would like to hear from our listeners if, if anyone else has kind of yeah. experienced that. Cause I'm now I'm curious, is this like localized to your area? Like, you know, <laughs> is it me? what's going on? So yes, let's like, Guys, then, give us feedback. Like, are you guys right? seeing this in your in your clinics? Because <laughs> I know that with the medical thing, there's the whole uh, the whole differential of like, is it factitious? Uh, is it mm-hmm. um, like the somatic? Uh, I, I think they changed it to DSM five somatic. Uh, yeah, somatoform system or whatever it is, uh, somatic symptom disorder. But there's this idea that there is like. you've talked to somebody 10 times, they do not have the diagnosis and they want you to keep talking to the physician. So I think that Neftal, you bring up a good point that just anything where you're working in this space where it's like, but we know that's not factually true. And I'm in a medical center, like what, like what, what, what route do I go? So yeah, that's a good cliffhanger. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear what the listeners have had with their experiences and what they've done in those space, in in that space. Yeah. Let us know. Yeah. So, you can let us know at info at cfha.net. You can send us an email and just let us know. Uh, speaking of hard conversations, uh, I had a really great interview with a toxicologist. His name is Dr. Emil, uh, Serge Emil Simpson. He's an ER physician uh, and director of the Division of Medical Toxicology at Albert Einstein Medical Center. And I wanted to talk to him because he uh, is an MAT provider in the Philadelphia area, not too far from where you are, Amber. And he just has a really great nuanced perspective, especially given that he's a toxicologist about what we're really doing with patients on a biochemical level with uh, MAT, with medication-assisted treatment, and really some of the hard parts, some of the hard spaces that physicians find themselves in, in working with patients uh, with opioid addiction. So... Uh, take a listen here to our conversation. Thanks again for being here with us. Serge, can you just introduce yourself to our podcast audience? Sure. My name is Serge Emil Simpson. I'm an ER physician and a medical toxicologist working at Einstein Medical Center for the past 12 years here in North Philly. I was trained in medicine in Philadelphia, both at uh, University of Pennsylvania and at Hahnemann. I recently got involved with Prevention Point maybe about two or three years ago in the lead up to the mayor's task force on combating the opioid epidemic. And I got to participate in that task force as well. And so in doing those things, it's kind of a natural extension of toxicology and my own personal interests um, in urban medicine. I uh, got involved in doing MAT work uh, with Prevention Point after the task force finished their objective. And I've been at Prevention Point for the past two years uh, as a part-time MAT provider in their step clinic. 
So for our listeners, uh, I heard Serge speak at a conference sponsored by the uh, National Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Pennsylvania. And uh, Serge, you just had a really great perspective on this opioid crisis from a provider perspective. So let's start with the the good first. Um, What has been the upside for you in working with patients with opioid addiction and using MAT as a tool? What, 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 what has worked well? What feels good about the parts of the practice that seem to be working for you? Um, well, so uh, I guess I'll focus on buprenorphine as a game-changing tool for us. Um, and, you know, with my ER provider hat on, it uh, <clears throat> represents just a, a sea change in, in what we're able to do for patients at the point of care, you know, when they're in the ER and have some kind of opioid use disorder announced either as the cause of their accident or just sort of, you know, as a byproduct of interviewing them, you can sort of intervene right there and then with a medication that's going to help them stop using their harmful opioid right away and is relatively safe and accessible to providers. You know, before before I got my X waiver, you basically would point them in the direction where help may lie or may not lie. You know, you didn't really know right. yourself because you weren't a provider. And, you know, unless you were some rare ER physician who uh, had done some homework and partnered with outpatient substance use disorder clinics, you just really didn't know where you were sending your patients. But sort of now that we have buprenorphine, you can really just give patients something right now that's going to help them either with withdrawal or help them prevent an overdose, help them abstain from using fentanyl or heroin. You know, all those things are now you know, within your grasp as an ER provider. And so that's really, uh, I think, the biggest plus for me. But that doesn't go very far. Unfortunately, that's just like, you know, your first contact in the ER. That's sort of the continuing process of keeping a person safe or maybe even getting them to recovery is, is where we get into the other pieces, I guess, of what you want to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's this, you know, change in that, uh, particularly from the ER standpoint, you can do something in the moment that could really be impactful in, in potentially getting someone on the right road or potentially saving their life at least immediately, right? So you, you have that tool, but then, uh, and I think this was probably the most potent part of the talk that I heard you give, there are some parts that are that are difficult. So, and I want to kind of break this question up into two parts here. So, could you speak to, from a provider standpoint, what are the the just hard parts of of uh, working in this area? And then, you know, I think what are the parts that sometimes really are not just hard, but they kind of could potentially make your stomach turn at times or make you feel. Uh, some inner conflict, let's put it that way, around what you're doing and whether it's helpful or not. So let's start with that first part. What are some of the pain points related to this? Okay, so I guess if I'm sort of no longer an ER physician and I'm a primary care provider or an MAT provider for a patient, then like then you sort of like enter the real hard work part of dealing with an opioid use disorder in particular. And there's so much more that needs to be done than just giving the patient medication that will help them with their cravings. You know, first of all, the patient has to remain committed to recovery. And that's, that's sometimes not necessarily the case. Like that may not be why the patient's there. And that's a shock to a lot of providers, both in the ER and, you know, the primary care setting that like maybe the patient's not ready to give up, you know, heroin. And it's mind blowing to us after we've just given someone Narcan and brought them back to the brink of death that patient would run back out there and want to do it again. But that's, you know, that's the sort of, neuropsychology of addiction. It's so so when you face over the long term dealing with a patient with an opioid use disorder, 
you realize, you know, just how limited the intervention is, you know, the MAT intervention, that this patient really needs a lot of, you know, behavioral health intervention, uh, unpacking of prior traumas, you know, working through a lot of ongoing social and psychological sort of traumas and baggage that, you know, that's just a lot of work. And each patient needs that. And so it becomes very staggering. You know, if you're only seeing a patient for a few minutes at a time, you kind of very quickly realize that this is an impossible ask. And then the numbers surrounding the success rates of all kinds of MATB and methadone, which is probably the most successful, all the way down to Vivitrol, you kind of understand why they're so abysmal, because each case needs so much intensive person-to-person work to sort of to, to keep them in treatment. And unless we're prepared as individual providers in a society to sort of like invest that time and effort, you know, it's going to be going to be mentally really hard because you'll see a lot of patients fail over and over and again, you know, in their attempts to to sort of beat this drug habit. So that's been a little hard for me, uh, you know, trying to bumping up against the limits of just MAT alone uh, very quickly and thinking, oh boy, you know, now now what do I have to do to to sort of improve this patient's odds and improve my sort of my efforts to sort of help people, you know? And, you know, how do you deal with that? Because that is a tough, it's sort of like a batting average in baseball, you know? And yeah. if you're yeah. hitting 250, you know, it, it just, it can wear on you. How, how do you deal with that as a provider? So, yeah, I mean, I'm in the middle of that. <laughs> I haven't got an answer. I, I definitely know where I'd like to head. And I know that adding a sort of um, a forum where, patients can sort of talk to each other and talk to a behavioral health specialist, like a social worker trained in, in leading groups, things like that, is really, really important. And there's a, a colleague of mine here at Einstein, Dr. Matt Beam, who has a, uh, an MAT practice in sort of folded into his primary care practice. And uh, I got to sit in on one of the group sessions and not all of his MAT clients attend the session, but the ones that do really highlight it as, as the most important part of their recovery process. It's usually the highlight of their week. And it was really powerful for me to see that. And, and, and if you sort of, if you think about that alongside um, patients, they, they, you know, what they're getting out of opioids and opioids or any kind of drug abuse is sort of, you know, a sense of feeling good. And that's something that we usually get from positive interactions with other people, pride in ourselves, um, you know. And so if you plan to take away, you know, the, the sort of highs associated with, recreational drug abuse, I feel like you have to have something to replace it. And, you know, sort of just relieving withdrawal is not enough. Like, you're not satisfying this sort of deeper need of the patient to sort of feel good and to feel normal and to feel loved, you know, and unless you're planning on making that a part of your MAT practice, I feel like you're going to bat 250 for a long time. Um, That's kind of my hypothesis, and I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking this, and I'd like to sort of make that change in my own practice to see if my average goes up. Now, you're also um, unique among many uh, MAT providers in that you are also a toxicologist. What perspective does that give you with respect to providing MAT services? Um, you know, in the talk that I heard you give, for example, I mean, you had a much more in-depth understanding of, like, sort of how many days, at what kind of doses seem to work, and what you need to do in certain situations. Does that, does that being a toxicologist give you sort of a unique perspective that um, you think other folks would benefit from, or is working with buprenorphine in particular uh, a pretty straightforward sort of settled 
you know, this is the way you do it? Or is there, is there some, you know, some amount of experimentation that we're still, still needing to go through? Sure. No, that's a, um, yeah, I, I think being a toxicologist has helped me be a physician on so many levels because I understand the medications uh, better. I understand the limitations of them. And I also understand that when you, you know, at least on the, on the drugs of abuse side, when you take these chemicals in monster doses, that the rules change and your understanding has to sort of be able to change as well. And I think, you know, so to your question about buprenorphine, buprenorphine is a very complicated drug. And I don't think the science has settled at all. You know, what is its sort of trick is that it's a high potency partial agonist. And that means that it is very tenaciously bound to the opioid receptors that seem to be the avenue for all the the euphoria that people feel, the pain which people feel, and also the respiratory depression and you know, and lethality that people can experience in overdose. And it's all through this receptor. And buprenorphine will occupy the receptor with an incredible tenacity and protect the patient from, you know, very uh, harmful opioids. But at the same time, it seems to have the ceiling effect. At least that's the, uh, the, uh, the teaching. But if you look at the actual data with a critical eye, you see that it ain't that simple. Um, there are certain places where buprenorphine has the ceiling and certain places where the ceiling seems to be a little sloped. And, you know, when we're dealing with buprenorphine versus a stable heroin habit, that's one thing. But when we start to look at buprenorphine against a really high-use fentanyl habit, it looks like a lot of the things we thought we knew about buprenorphine sort of are getting challenged. And so, so in that regard, like, you know, I'm better able to sort of see the subtleties there and to sort of understand them and to, and to maybe even leave room for doubt in a way that doesn't make me completely uh, ineffective as a physician. You know, I, I can sort of uh, try to understand what the patient's going through, what their urine is showing or not showing, and try to sort of fit it into a, a larger framework of understanding uh, about drugs in general. Yeah, well, I appreciate that uh, perspective. And I think that really struck me as I heard your talk. But for now, I just want to end our, our interview just by asking you about the future here. Um, uh, what, what do we still need to learn about delivering MAT services that would be most helpful for providers like you in the trenches doing this work, trying to figure it out as you go? So I think the most important thing for, for providers sort of new and old um, you know, in this sort of MAT space is to just uh, keep an open mind and be creative and be willing to, you know, read up on what data exists and then make safe but educated guesses about where we could go because it is not settled. Like I said, um, the fentanyl epidemic on top of the heroin epidemic, I think, is just beginning. And we are seeing, at least in Kensington, the sort of features of a, of a you know, opioid use disorder changing because of the way that fentanyl is different from heroin. It is, um, you know, people are shooting a lot more than they normally would. We're sort of seeing um, more sort of dangerous use of needles and reuse of needles. You know, like the, the threat of HIV and hep C spiking is once again at the forefront. Uh, you know, I, there's a lot, I think, that um, we haven't answered about buprenorphine, specifically about, you know, how are higher doses going to be helpful than what, than what we're used to giving, you know, 24, 32 milligrams a day versus eight or 16, you know, is, is there some pay dirt there in terms of better sort of uh, control for patients, you know, maybe even 
and this is something that I've just been turning over my head recently, making a distinction in the patients that you're treating between those that are interested in full recovery and those that are just interested in harm reduction and to sort of work with them to, to reach the goals that are important to them. Because so I think a lot of times, at least my assumption is that patients are seeing me because they want to stop using altogether. And it's, you know, it was very quickly, I very quickly learned that that was not the case. And then, so what do you do with a patient who has no intention of stopping using, you know, fentanyl, at least not yet. At least the prevention point is very clear because we're in a very high risk, highly dangerous uh, neighborhood in the city. You know, people who are seeking our care and prevention point oftentimes literally have no place else to go. And so, you know, I'm not turning people away there. And so I really have to sort of embrace this open mind for folks who just want harm reduction and are nowhere near ready to start a, you know, a journey to recovery. And so I think you have to be flexible to answer your question. You know, I'm sorry, my answers are so long-winded, but, you know, everybody has to sort of approach this with an open mind because we really are, um, we don't know it all yet as providers and our patients can teach us a lot. And really, we have to meet them where they are at and hear what they want from us and, and how we can help them. And I think if we're tuned into that, then, then we're going to sort of learn new things together, the patients and the physicians, and learn how to use the buprenorphine better, you know, learn how to sort of guide them better through, you know, the dangers of using opioids and hopefully, you know, get more of them on the recovery side and repair more lives. I don't know. That's my, my hope for the future, at least for me personally. And uh, the things I'm going to be working on in 2020. Thank you so much. That hit areas on the edge of MAT work that I don't think get enough play. Uh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And we're back. Uh, so many thanks to uh, Serge uh, for giving us the time. He's he's a really great guy on top of everything uh, else that he does for his patients. But what I appreciate the most is just how thoughtful he is about these issues. And I hope that uh, particularly physicians out there listening can find at least some solace that there are other physicians struggling with some of these same questions as they seek to do the best they can for patients suffering from opioid addiction. All right. Well, as is our uh, tradition, we have a parting thought. And although he wasn't able to be with us today, uh, Deepu George, one of our regular podcast team members, did record a parting thought for us. So, Deepu, take it away. Sometime when the river is ice, ask me mistakes I have made. Ask me whether what I have done is my life. Others have come in their slow way into my thought, and some have tried to help or to hurt. Ask me what difference their strongest love or hate has made. I will listen to what you say. You and I can turn and look at the silent river and wait. We know the current is there, hidden, and there are comings and goings from miles away that hold the stillness exactly before us. What the river says, that is what I say. William Stafford from the poem Ask Me. All right. And that is it. That's a wrap. That was fun. That was good. That was fantastic, guys. Thank you so much. All right. Yeah, well, great, great to you see guys. you guys. Thank you so much, and see you next month. All right. All right. See you all. Bye, everybody. Day. Bye. <laughs> see ya.